right. Good evening. Let's go. I'm excited about tonight for multiple reasons. Um, one, we're continuing the conversation that we uh, have been in the past few weeks about wisdom for relationships. Um, and I'm excited for a couple reasons. And one of those things is what I just sense in the room. It's, I, I feel like, you know, as we were in worship, I just, I just sensed like an overwhelming just sense of love and pride. I, I feel really proud of, um, of who we are, of, of who you guys are, of the fact that you guys are here and what God is doing in your lives. Uh, really proud of our worship team. They did a phenomenal job. No, seriously. Um, just really, really proud. And, and I feel like that was just a, a reflection of how the Father really feels about us. And, and I feel like I got a just a renewed, kind of a refreshed sense of God overseeing his bride, which sounds like churchy language, but the, but the reality is that the illustrations in scripture are the ones that God put there. And if, if Jesus says that the church is his bride, uh, sometimes those are things that we can just glance over and look over and not pay deep attention to and close attention to, but the reality is that he says that for a reason. And when I think about my bride, who I know is watching right now, I love you. Um, I feel like especially even as time goes on, we just get more deeply connected. I feel like my affection for her continues to grow. My love for her continues to grow. And my pride in who she is continues to grow. And I feel like, you know, that was just going through my mind, even at just thinking about, you know, sometimes we just get down in the nonsense of the Christian conversations and, and, and all that stuff. And, and God is often not in the nonsense that we're discussing. God still considers his church his bride. And I know that, that he still looks at his church with love and with affection, uh, with, with, with care and with pride in, in who we are becoming. And I feel like it's important for that type of tone to be set for even what we're talking about tonight because what I felt led to discuss tonight is, um, is a very, very important subject for our lives. But very, very important subjects can go right over our head. They can go in one ear and out the other if we don't really understand the gravity and the weight of what we're discussing and if we don't understand the cost on the other end of what we're discussing. And so I wanna jump right into it. Tonight, we're, we're talking about wisdom for relationships. And again, I, I mentioned to you early on uh, that this wasn't really a series. It just kind of ultimately became one and it doesn't have like a catchy relationship title. And I don't really love doing like relationship series in February. It's so predictable, right? But the reality is that the conversation is happening and we have to engage the conversation with wisdom. And I think that, you know, over time, if there's anything that I've seen is that we can have a lot of insight revelation, we can be on fire for God, we can love Jesus, we can love the word, we can know the Bible front to back and still really lack 
wisdom in certain areas of our lives. We can be on fire and zealous and we can be serving the Lord. We can be doing all kinds of things, have amazing ideas, and we can still lack practical wisdom in certain areas of our lives. And our lack of practical wisdom in one area of our life can have catastrophic effects on the rest of our life. Have you guys noticed that? That when you get into a mess in one area of your life, it's not always contained in that one area but it can have catastrophic effects on the rest of your life. And because of that, God has placed boundaries around every area of our lives to give us wisdom for how to operate, to give us a path. How many of you guys know there is no path without boundaries? There is no way without boundaries. Unless there is a point at which it stops, there is no way. There have to be boundaries if there is any path. And if you are not going to wander aimlessly through life, wander aimlessly throughout the earth, you have to have boundaries. You have to have a path. And this is why Jesus came and said revolutionary things like, I am the way. Things that we hear in church often, but we glance over and it becomes churchy language and we say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and we kind of know that, but he, he really means that. And when it comes down to practical application, it's important that we really understand the truth. And so here's what I wanna talk about tonight. As a part of our wisdom for relationships conversation, I wanna talk about resisting temptation. Anybody feel like that's timely? A couple people, some people, they don't want to reveal that they've been struggling with some temptations in their lives. But the reality is, whether you've been struggling with it or not, you're facing temptation. And if you've not been struggling, praise God. But temptation has to be resisted. It has to be dealt with, and this can be actually one of the most exhausting parts of the Christian walk is resisting temptation. And it can become so exhausting that we start telling ourselves narratives in our minds to make it easier. We can start believing lies in our minds to make it easier because the reality is resisting temptation can be exhausting. And you know what looks really appealing? The Christian life, the favor of God, the blessings of God, the presence of God without the exhausting resistance of temptation. What if God just extended the boundary lines a little bit and we didn't have to worry so much about resisting temptation and we could just chill? It sounds good until you realize that boundaries are there for a reason and that when boundaries get extended, things get messier and life does not get better. In fact, life gets more complicated and life gets more devastating. And I want us to look into a person's life tonight. Actually, we're just gonna continue the life that we've been looking into. I want us to look at David tonight and I want us to look at a familiar passage of scripture from maybe maybe an unfamiliar vantage point. But I want us to look at Resisting temptation through the lens of David and Bathsheba. 
And before we dive into this passage, I, I wanna preface this by saying, David is one of the most prominent people who have ever existed, according to God. When I say David, you know who I'm talking about. That in itself is quite a feat with the trillions of people who've been in existence. And even, how many people in this room are named David? Just lift your hand, please. A couple Davids? I don't even see that many. I know at least David Sutherland is in here. I thought I knew I was at least going to have a couple. But the reality is there have been a lot of Davids, and there's one who is understood to be the David, first name basis, and God told him that he would give him a name like the great ones who have existed. And he is one of the most prominent figures in scripture, one of the most prominent figures in history. I would say that he's accomplished um, a lot and he would have, I think, you know, in most societies, when you're looking at people in the upper echelon of, of that society, you typically measure people based on the things that they accomplish, right? And the level of influence and prominence that they have. And David was the king of Israel. Not a lot of people get to be king. And not only was he the king of Israel, he's kind of like the favorite king of all of Israel. And He's, he, Jesus came from the line of David. There's, I mean, there's just nonstop accolades that, that David had. But David had some really significant issues in his life. And David ran into some problems that really were not necessary parts of his story. They were not contributions to his purpose they were not contributions to his legacy. In fact, they were just stains and tarnishes on his legacy. They were not really necessary for the plan of God over his life. And he could have avoided just some dumb mistakes. We talked about one of those things last time, which is God actually said early on for kings not to take many wives. And if you look at David, he took many wives. There's just a list of he had a baby by this one and then a baby by this one and then a baby by this one. And I don't know if he ever had two babies with the same woman. This is the David that we're talking about. And he lived kind of a complicated life because he was adored by God, loved by God, described by God as a man after his own heart. And he would be obedient to God in almost everything that he did. When God told David to do something, he would go do it. And yet, he had this area of his life that was unchecked. And this area of his life that he really would not put boundaries on. And it did not stay contained in that one area of his life. And it started having catastrophic effects on the rest of his life. And one of those examples is here. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses one through five, it says this. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers in all of Israel. Joab was the commander over David's entire army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone 
to inquire about her. And he, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. And the reason that it gives that detail in the story is because she had been purifying herself after her monthly cycle, meaning this was right when she was ovulating. This is why the Bible is telling us this detail. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Look at the escalation. In the springtime, the weather is beautiful. Kings are going out to war, doing what they typically do. David's military is going out, and they are not losing battles. They are winning battles, and God is honoring what he told David he would do for him and giving him victory, giving him blessing, expanding his kingdom. David stays back uh, instead of being out at war, and he's... Minding his business temporarily until he's not. And he's taking a stroll on the roof of the palace and he looks and he sees a woman bathing and it escalates very quickly. And I want us to look at this story, not as just some ancient story, but the story of human beings in human situations so that we can place ourselves in these events and get wisdom and understand how we can learn from the mistakes of others. David wasn't going on his rooftop to sin. David was going on his rooftop doing what he normally does, and then he runs into a situation. Has anybody ever been in those circumstances where you were not looking for sin? but you've stumbled upon it. Or have you? Because did he stumble upon sin? No, he didn't stumble upon sin. He stumbled upon temptation. He stumbled upon temptation to sin. And it started as his eyes saw something that granted he should not have seen. His eyes saw something that tempted him to do something that he knew he was not supposed to do. Well, how do we know he wasn't supposed to do it? Well, I think David knew he wasn't supposed to do it because in Exodus chapter 20, way before David, verse 14, God says this, do not commit adultery. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20, God says this very clearly, you are not to have sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife, defiling yourself with her. I think that's pretty clear. Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, do not commit adultery. And so David, he sees a woman bathing and sends to get information about her. And this is adultery, honestly, on every side because David is married. I mean, David's married multiple times, so maybe he doesn't feel like it's adultery, but I mean, you're still married. Then he finds out she's married. And who is she married to? Not just any randoms. This is why they said the daughter of Eliam, which was somebody who was close to David, prominent in his kingdom. And then the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his greatest soldiers. 
And David says, go get her. Have you ever been in a situation where it, it doesn't make sense for you to make the decision you're about to make? It's clearly not a wise decision, but you feel this temptation to make it anyway. What are the appealing factors? In this situation, I mean, to me, when you look at David, if you're just thinking logically, he had a, he had top, he had a top 30 when it came to soldiers. Uriah was one of his top 30 soldiers. And when you think about an army, a military of thousands of warriors, your top 30 are kind of important guys. So logically, you would say, okay, I'm the king. If I really want to be with somebody that bad, I could kind of have whoever I want. Should I go after the wife of one of my top 30 soldiers? Logically, that doesn't make sense. Especially when the penalty for adultery is death. It's outlined in the law, in the Torah, and David knows it. So David is tempted to do something really stupid because he's not above the law. So he knows she's this guy's wife, one of my best soldiers, adultery is against the law, adultery is punishable by death, and he says, go get her. How often are we tempted with foolish circumstances very similar to this. I would say that one of the keys when we're talking about resisting temptation that I have found when it comes to wisdom in relationships is this, fast forward to the end scenarios. If David would have just played the tape forward and said, what are the potential end results of these actions? There's no way he could have come up with a positive outcome. I wanna to talk to us tonight because often we are encouraged to engage in activities that have no real positive outcomes and just nobody says that. So we idolize the actions we idolize the processes. We idolize the pursuit of our own pleasures and desires. And nobody talks about the end scenarios being terrible. We just experience them, but often don't discuss them. And so what is becoming God in our society is just the pursuit of our own pleasure. That's tempting for all of us until you fast forward to the end scenarios. There's no way David really wanted the situation. We didn't even read the end of the scenario. There's no way that he even wanted the scenario to end up here. She's now pregnant. There's now an, an irreversible consequence that has to be dealt with. That is your life and my life every day. Those are the decisions that are being brought to us. Can I tell you, when we talk about sex outside of marriage, there's a reason that God put boundaries on sex, and he put a path, and he put a way 
on sex because within marriage, it's healthy. And there are not irreversible consequences that you have to deal with. There's just the progression of a family outside of the boundaries that God has placed on sex, we now get into situations that we have to figure out, that nobody's offering real solutions to. And what are we seeing? We're seeing the breakdown of the family in our nation. We're seeing the breakdown of stability. We're seeing a breakdown in mental health but we don't attribute it to the fact that we're removing boundaries, that we're removing a path, that we're removing a way from everything. Of course there's chaos in our minds if we have no way, if we have no path. Of course there's chaos. Of course there are chaos, there's chaos in our relationships. Of course, we're having chaotic outcomes, and we're always trying to come up with new solutions and new remedies that don't work because we're simply not working within the boundaries that God has given us. I'm a living testament of this. I feel like I got to say this all the time. I've done it. Stepping outside of the boundaries that God has provided was a lifestyle for me. It became a lifestyle for me. And you know what I found? There's not life in it. There's not life in the decisions to just pursue your own pleasure in any area of life. That's career, that's business, that's relationships. When your pursuit is just your own desires, it is one of the most empty, sad pursuits. Can, can you see the correlation between the increase in our desire to only pursue our desires and the increase in anxiety, the increase in depression, the breakdown of stability in every area of society to where most people, our norm is to be falling apart. But nobody's having the conversations to say, you know, God actually has intentions for you to live a full life. And Jesus said, I came so that they might have life and have it to the full. Meaning, without him, we do not have life and we do not have it to the full. And one of the greatest lies that you and I come across and experience is the lie that temptation is inviting you into a more full life. That sin is inviting you into a more full life. That's not what happens. We can look at David's life and we can look at just about anybody's life on the planet. If we start the trajectory after sin, we are going to see devastation follow. James would say it this way in chapter one, verses 13 through 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted 
when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, then a process takes place. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. There is a process that we undergo. And so when we're talking about resisting temptation, part of it is understanding the process that's taking place. You coming across something that is appealing is not you coming across sin. You coming across something that, that is appealing is you being invited to make a decision. And understand when you fast forward the tape what is going to take place as a result of that process. Eve, she looks at the fruit and she starts seeing good things in it, even though God says, do not eat of this tree because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And she starts staring at it so long that this process starts taking place. She starts getting dragged away by her own desires and her desire gives birth to sin because she then, she then consumes the fruit and then that gives birth to death. For you and I, that is always what the enemy is trying to accomplish. It's being dressed up in a billion different ways. It's being phrased in a billion different ways. Sometimes it's phrased as liberty and freedom and a billion different things, but it's all the same process. The enemy says, how can I get you to desire something that will give birth to sin so that it will give birth to death and destruction in your life. That's what's on the other side of what we argue about, of what we go back and forth about, of what we say, well, isn't it okay for me to do this? And isn't it okay for me to do that? And is it really that bad for... The reality is, that's not the conversation that you and I need to be having. There is a calling on your life. You have the opportunity to walk in step with the God of all creation who has a perfect plan for your life. It's not a plan that, that is devoid of suffering and devoid of challenges and trials. In fact, he says rejoice when you run into trials because in those, he will produce perseverance and perseverance will start producing maturity and completion and perfection in you. There is a plan for your development until the day of Christ. And that plan is so that you will have life and have life to the full. That's what God has for you. But the crossroad is you're being presented with this idea that that's not what he has for you. And in fact, that there's going to be some amazing end scenario at the end of you just pursuing what you wanna pursue but it gives birth to death and to destruction. And the word of God will give birth to life in you. Amen? I wanna talk really plainly tonight. And I want us to digest what we're talking about. And so the, the first point is you fast forward to the end scenarios. In, in, to, to sum up that point, when you are running into a tempting situation, one of the wisest things that you can do is just really 
play out the potential outcomes. Here's an example. I'm married. I hope you guys know that. I can see an attractive woman. What are the end scenarios of it being anything other than that? I can't think of one positive next after that. there's, There's no positive next after that. Not even, not, you look nice today is not a positive <laughs> next. That's a negative. Well, that's, that's starting, that's starting for desire to give birth to sin and for sin to give birth to death. Can I, can I talk real with you guys? There is, there's nothing, there's nowhere to go. It's done. I'm married. I need to look at my wife and think she looks nice today and she's attractive. And how can I help her and develop her and what's going to make her happy today? I can see so many positive outcomes after that. This is why we have to fast forward to end scenarios because sometimes we're just doing stupid stuff that was never gonna turn out well. There are, there are end scenarios for every path that we are invited down. And sometimes these, these are the things that we don't think about when we're struggling in cycles of sin and temptation and we get stuck because we're never really thinking about the outcomes of it. Many of us are stuck in cycles of pornography and lust, and one of the ways to break free is not just an accountability partner. I love having accountability. We all need accountability, but accountability will not fix the way you think. And accountability will not change what you value and what you think is good and what you think is wise. And sometimes these are, just, these are the discussions that we need to have. Why do I feel like this is okay? Is, is the first thing to start thinking about. And what are the end scenarios here? Let's fast forward the tape a little bit. We're talking about relationships, right? God has placed sex within boundaries, right? So within the boundaries of marriage, sex is healthy. If you are somebody who wants to engage in sex in marriage, then you have to consider that as an end scenario of you engaging with sex outside the boundaries. But often we don't do that. And we don't correlate what we're doing now with what's going to take place later. So is, what are the end scenarios of you engaging in pornography. Um, one, can, I, can y'all just give me grace tonight? Can, I'm, I'm, I wanna ask, because someti- I feel like sometimes we need to hear things in a different way, okay? 
Now this is not judgment, it's not criticism. Almost everything that I talk to you guys about are, are things that I've navigated through, okay? One, it's weird. <laughs> and nobody's telling you that because, because it's encouraged everywhere on, on TV shows and movies and everything. It's now becoming the norm. I remember sitting across from a friend who is, was kind of a believer, kind of not, and, and this person had a, a, a daughter and found out that their daughter is young, like 10 years old, was watching uh, pornography and was like, man, I just feel like it's natural. Yeah. Yeah, that's, this is what society is breeding in us that it's, it's shown to us so often that it becomes normal, and not just normal, now it's natural. It's not, because it's natural to explore your desires, right? I, I don't know, is it normal for you to watch two strangers engaging in sexual intercourse on a computer screen? Is that normal? I, like, like I said, just give me grace. Because some of us, some of us, some of us need to hear it this way. Because, because the way that we're being told is like, I know this temptation is so strong. I know it's so difficult and it's so good and it's so fun, but God does not want you to do it. And that's why we struggle because we actually love it. And our desires have not changed and the way that we view it has not changed. And, and we can't even see that we're, we're, we're looking at humans and not considering them human. We're looking at people with a calling and with a purpose on their lives who are living in devastation and destruction and have completely degraded themselves to where they have no concern, no care about their reputation, about their future, about their legacy, nothing. And we don't see any of it. And that's what temptation starts inviting us down, starts inviting us down roads to where we get to spaces that we never even really realized we would be, and we think in ways that have become so far from how God sees things, and then we wonder why it ends up causing destruction in other areas of our lives. You think you can look at one human and not consider them human, and you don't do that all the time? You don't think that many of our struggles with lust are because we don't even see people as people. We see them as objects for pleasure. That's what ends up happening. And we hear it and we say, oh, we objectify women. We objectify this and we look at, no, that's actually what happens is we start seeing people as objects for pleasure. And this is what David did. This is why I said we have to look at this through a human lens. David sees Bathsheba and he starts not caring about anything that she has going on in life. I don't care whose daughter that is. I don't care whose wife that is. I don't care what she's got going on. I don't care if she got kids. I don't care if she has a calling, if she has a purpose. Go get her. Because he saw her as an object for his pleasure. 
That's what he saw, a good time, a good experience, not a person, not a human. And this is why it's sin. And then we get in arguments about whether these things are sin, and we don't even realize that the fact that we're arguing it shows how far we've gotten. Sex outside of marriage, is it that big of a deal? Well, not when we just say it like that. But when you think about the fact that the person that you're talking about sleeping with, God has intent and purpose and plans for this person's life, and he came to give them life and life to the full, life more abundantly, and part of life to the full and life more abundantly is love and safety and security and protection and not going through unnecessary pain and unnecessary struggle. And we say, well, what's wrong with a little unnecessary pain and unnecessary struggle when we say, what's wrong with me stepping outside of the boundaries? And I hope this is helping because each and every one of us has a calling on our lives that is greater than what we could ever imagine. Genuinely, what God wants to do with you, for you, through you, is just greater than what you could imagine because his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His love for you is so deep that nothing in all of creation could separate you from his love. Temptation is just trying to get you to shift your gaze, shift your focus off of that. You want to you know one of the uh, greatest temptations I face now? Just not doing ministry. I'm, I'm, thank you. I appreciate it. Some people, look. Oh, you're surprised? Yeah. I love y'all. But don't you, I mean, let, like, let's think logically. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm making an impact and if I'm, if I'm advancing the kingdom of God, don't you think that there would probably be some things that would try to come and deter me from that? Absolutely. And so I understand the plot, though. So this was not me complaining and saying, I don't want to do ministry. I love doing this. I really do. That's why temptation is crazy. Because temptation will tempt you to walk away from the amazing things that God has for you. I love almost every aspect of doing this. I love seeking God for a word. I love thinking about it and thinking through it and thinking about who needs to hear it and, and ideating through different examples and circumstances and just thinking of how this could potentially impact people's decision-making and impact their future families and impact all these things. And, and I love being a little bit unsure about whether it's done and then praying and knowing that I need God to come through and that at the end of the day, the only thing that can really make a difference in your life is whether God translates his own word into your heart, into your circumstances, and then just continuing to step out and do that. That is like my, my little war that I'm engaged in all the time against the kingdom of darkness. And, and the temptation that I face is to just go do something else that would benefit me more. 
And the, but I know that the truth is, there's nothing that I could do that's more important. And so that's what I wrestle between. Ah, sometimes I just wanna go do something that's easier and is more beneficial on my behalf. But what I know is, at the end of the day, what I really, 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 really want is for God's will to be done in my life. And what I don't wanna do is drop the ball and then get to the end of my life and be like, dang, that was dumb. I dropped out of the race, I dropped out of the fight, for what? For what reason? For what purpose? To pursue what? Empty stuff. And so I just want to keep going and keep fighting and keep preaching and keep sharing and keep ministering and keep punching the devil in the face day by day. But I understand that I always have to fast forward to the end scenario if I'm going to make a wise decision. And I would say the same thing for you. Thank you. I love you too, man. All right. Number two, do not try to fix your sin on your own. Resisting temptation, fast forward to the end scenarios, and then if you mess up, do not try to fix your sin on your own. Let's look at what happens after this. Immediately after David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, this is what he does. Verses six through 11, David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And this was a very ancient way of saying, go enjoy yourself at home. You know what I'm talking about, your wife is at home. Go, enjoy yourself, enjoy the hospitality of your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. David sent Uriah home and he sent a gift, meaning he probably sent a meal. He sent a little wine. Look, I want to let you wine and dine your wife. I want y'all to have a good time, man. Just wanted to invite you and send you home to have a good time because I got her pregnant. And so David is scheming. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Uriah is like, I don't know what you're talking about but I'm in war mode, I'm focused, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And how could I have all the people that I'm fighting with over here going through what they're going through and I'm just over here chilling? Uriah's character is being contrasted with David even in this scenario. David is supposed to be the one after God's own heart. How far has he fallen to where Uriah is now the one having to be the righteous one in the situation and David is scheming? Have you ever been in a situation where you messed up and now there are consequences to your own actions and you are in scheme mode? Have you ever tried to hide, cover up what you've done, cover up what you're doing? Try to make things a little, bit le- a, a little bit less consequential for yourself. Start lying a little bit. 
manipulating a little bit, covering things up. These are oftentimes the things that we do. We go into hiding and manipulating and not being honest with ourselves, not being honest with God. We can turn into a whole different person over some sin. I don't even recognize David here. Who is this? You read all throughout his story, and you see this character, this integrity. He loves the Lord. He stands up for what's right. He does what's just. He's humble. And at a certain point, he became vulnerable. And sometimes you and I are being protected by having our influence limited, by having our, our status, our capability, our power limited, sometimes we're being protected against our own desires that are dormant inside that could really cause devastation in our lives if they were exacerbated by a greater level of influence. What am I saying? David was a man after God's own heart. David loved the Lord. David started as a shepherd and then became a warrior, and then was on the run for his life, and, it was, and he went through so many things to get to where he was. He finally became king over Judah at the age of 30 years old, and then finally became king over Israel that was prophesied over him when he was 37 years old. And then now he's finally walking in his calling, walking in his purpose, and the power got the best of him in this scenario. Not even for the entire time, but in this scenario, the power got the best of him. And desire gave birth to sin and gave birth to death. And what does he do? Instead of going and repenting to God, instead of taking accountability, and responsibility for his actions, he tries to fix his own mess. And sometimes these are the spaces that we find ourselves in and they just further our problems and they further our addictions, they further our issues because we're not going to God. And sometimes there are things in us that are like, man, this isn't that serious, I can figure this out. I can fix this situation. This is not that bad. I know what I can do. I know how I can clean this up. And because we are not willing to humble ourselves before God, we can really bring unnecessary pain, unnecessary grief upon ourselves. One of the greatest things that you can do when you fall is just to acknowledge that you've fallen short. The Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to fix your own mess. In fact, you can't fix your own mess. You cannot fix your own sin. And one of the greatest things that you can do is just take accountability for your decision-making and bring it to God. And this is the third point, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Often this is the missing part because we will share it in small group. We'll share it in a prayer circle. 
We will put in a prayer request, but we will not actually go to Jesus. Pray for me. I'm struggling. While we're not actually repenting, and one of the greatest things that you can do is learn this aspect of Christ as him being loving and forgiving and welcoming you with open arms. It's one of the, it's one of the greatest ways to experience the grace of God is to obtain mercy in your time of need is what the Bible says. We can actually turn to Jesus but I want to contrast this with, with what will happen and what happened to David because not only did he not repent, but he actually was under the old covenant. He didn't have the forgiveness of his sins just readily available for him. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Nathan, the prophet, God sends Nathan to David to tell him this story about a rich man who does a poor man wrong. And David thinks it's a real story that's taking place in his kingdom. And David says, oh no, 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 no. Go get that guy, we gonna have to kill him. And Nathan replied to David, you're the man. You're the guy. You're the one who took advantage of this whole situation. You're the one who's taken advantage of a vulnerable person and exploited people based on your power, abused your power, abused your influence, and sinned against God. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why? Have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite because if you fast forward through the story, when David can't get him to go sleep with his wife, David orders to have him killed. I couldn't get through the whole story tonight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. David had to suffer the punishment of God as the consequences of his sin. And if you read the rest of David's story, God actually comes through on this promise. God details in this story, he says, I'm gonna rise up the sword from within your own house. I'm gonna let somebody sleep with your wives in the sight of the entire city. It's kind of crazy. God really felt a way about what he did. And, and then it actually happens. One of David's own sons runs him out of town and causes this bloody war to, to kick David off of the throne and he sleeps with David's wives in the sight of the whole city. It's a mess. And it was all avoidable. But it was part of David's punishment. And this is why I love the fact that I get to live in 2024. And you do as well. Because you and I have the beautiful option of just receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. Why? Amen. But why? Because of what God started a long time ago. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it, it describes Jesus' uh, 
the punishment that he was gonna undergo. And he says this, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus said this about himself in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to just take a moment and, and, and sit with the weight of this. When David sinned, David had to pay the price. This is also why David felt the need to fix his own sin. He didn't just have a Jesus, I confess and I receive your payment because the payment had not been made. This is the beauty of the gospel. Do you know what gospel means? It means good news. Good news. Good news, you don't have to pay the price for your own sins. And, and it's not just like a, a fairy tale. This is the reality that we're living in. As human beings, we are all going to sin. The Bible tells us that all fall short, all sin. That if we say we're, that we're without sin, then we're lying. Everybody has fallen short. Everybody has sinned. And this is the good news. This is such good news that Jesus trained disciples for years just to send them out and share this message, that there is good news. You can be forgiven for your sin. You do not have to be punished. You do not have to suffer consequences. God is not going to speak a curse over you. God is not going to reject you. God is not going to make you go through unnecessary pain and unnecessary agony and give you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and punish you for your sin. In fact, the good news is God took on human flesh and lived a sinless life, sinless existence. He didn't do anything like what David did. And he didn't do anything like what you and I normally do. Just so that he could be punished so that you would not have to be punished. Can you think of the sacrifice to live 33 years of just not sinning and just serving people and praying for people, sharing truth with people, raising people from the dead, laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover. For what? You didn't do anything. You don't need anything. We needed it. He did all of that just so he could qualify to take your place in your punishment. And the punishment that was upon him brought you peace. The punishment that brought you peace was upon him. The punishment that brought you peace was upon him. This is the gospel. 
This is why temptation is worth resisting. This is why sin is not worth playing with in our lives. It has no place in our lives. We've been redeemed, restored, brought to life, forgiven. There's been a payment for our sin. And this is also, the reason why I'm going through this slowly and methodically and in a way that almost sounds elementary is because these are essential truths that you have to understand to actually overcome sin in your life. If you don't really just sit with the idea that this has been paid for, then you'll never really engage with that reality. You'll subconsciously feel like you have to pay for your own sin. You will not rush to repent and turn to God and receive. Think about this. He says, if we say we're without sin, we're lying. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't even really feel like it should make sense. It shouldn't be that easy. It's easy for us, but it was extremely difficult for him. Extremely painful for Jesus. He was beaten, bloody, till his guts were falling out. And his bones were exposed. And the flesh was hanging off his back. And his body was going into shock. And then they made him carry a cross uphill. And it got so bad that then they forced somebody else to help him to carry it. And this, was be- this is before the crucifixion. This is just the warm-up. So when we say the punishment that brought you peace was upon him, he means it. It was not a small price to pay. It was a bloody cross. It was excruciating. It was painful. And he saw you and I as worth it so that you and I wouldn't have to go down the same path that so many people have gone down and experiencing curses and punishment and all kinds of unnecessary grief. He did all that so that you could just go to him and say, I confess, I sinned. Lord, will you forgive me? And the answer is always yes. Turn to Jesus. That's the gospel. I wanna close here. We see Jesus undergo temptation and, and, and I just wanna close here as, as one more nugget for us. Um, because he, he actually shares with us one of the greatest weapons against temptation when we watch him model resisting temptation. In Luke 4, verses two through four, we see this. For 40 days, uh, it says that the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written. Man must not live on bread alone. What I'm about to share with you is going to sound elementary. It's gonna sound trivial and it's gonna sound easy. 
But I want you to just think about this for a minute. Jesus is being tempted, not by a demon, by the devil. And we don't need to get into the weeds of why this was such a tempting situation, but just just know that the devil had three shots at getting the very son of God to abandon his purpose and save humanity. So uh, I think that he's probably coming at him with his best. And Jesus does not respond by praying, by silence. He doesn't respond by just being strong and resisting and being like, He responds, not by saying, God told me. I want you to catch this. He says, it is written. It is written. Don't we hear one of the primary accusations against the Bible? Don't we hear that one of the greatest attacks against the Bible is that it was written? It was written by men. It was written by people. And yet Jesus uses it is written as the greatest offensive weapon against the enemy. In Ephesians, Paul says this in in Ephesians chapter six, he talks about the putting on the full armor of God and at the end, and he says, and the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. You and I, have the greatest weapon against lies because at the root of temptation, that's, that's all it is, sitting in front of us, sitting in our pockets, sitting in front of us most days in our lives. And God himself, when facing temptation on earth, knew that the truth of God that was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of men, embedded in the heart and understood by a person was the greatest weapon against deviation from God's will. The word of God breathed through the spirit, written through the hand of men, was what Jesus said is my greatest weapon against temptation. He didn't say the Holy Spirit told me inside. He said it is written. The same thing that's available for you and I is what Jesus was reading. The same Bible that we just preached from is what Jesus used as his ammunition against the enemy. You and I have everything that we need for the freedom that we desire. We have everything that we need. 